Hello, my name's Chris Jones. Welcome to my monthly podcast, The Influencers, a series of in-depth and honest interviews with people from all walks of life who are actually changing, shaping and influencing our daily lives in one form or another. Now, things are a little bit different at the moment, of course, and it's become difficult or impossible, really, for me to interview my guests in the normal way. But through the wonderful world of the Zoom app, which I'm sure we're all familiar with by now, I'm very pleased to announce that my next guest as the influencer for May is the CEO of the Welsh-based homeless charity Hamai Francis Beecher. Now, Francis has devoted her life, really, and career to the issues of domestic violence and homelessness, and it was an absolute pleasure to have her as a guest and have a good chat with her recently. Now, computers, okay, being as they are, there are a few little sound glitches in this interview, but I don't think it's too bad at all. And after all, it was recorded on my kitchen table. Enjoy. First of all, uh, what exactly is your role? What's your title with regards to, to Shamai? Um, well, my title is um, the chief exec of Shamai. And um, as you know, Shamai is Wales's, I think, leading homeless charity for young people and women. Okay, let, let's let's stop right there. All right? You say Shamai, I'm saying Shamai. Okay. So tell me... For maybe people who are listening to this outside of Wales or maybe don't know a little bit of the Welsh language, what does Hiamai mean or Hiamai mean to you? And where's it come from? Where's the name come from? Yeah, Hiamai is a very interesting name, I think. Um, Hiamai means steps or progression in Old Welsh. So even those amazing Welsh speakers um, find the word quite strange. Um, But it's been our name for over 30 years. And what I always say to anyone who struggles to say it Think of a lamb and think of the eye and put the two together. And if you can go, give a good... A well, yeah. You're a winner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, that might be quite difficult for even Welsh people, some of them. So how did it come about then? How, who, who started it? Why, why did it start in the first place? Well, my came about, uh, there was a group of amazing probation officers way back, uh, probably about 33 years ago now. And they took a group of young people down to Cornwall, I believe, um, for a break. And it was on the minibus back that they realised that three of the six or seven young people they, they'd taken out had nowhere to stay when they got, they, um, got back. Uh, literally had nowhere to stay. They were had come out of a young offenders institute, and they were homeless. So these probation officers came together and decided to try and create um, a, an organisation that would help young people in this situation. And one of those amazing probation officers was none other than Mark Drakeford, um, our mm-hmm. current first minister. Oh wow. And that's how that's how the organisation started many many years ago. So, I mean, the main purpose of Hamai then basically is to help anybody who finds themselves in a homeless situation. I mean, there's there's, there's quite a few situations, I suppose. It's not just people, um, you know, uh, sleeping on the street, does it? I think that's yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. Hamai's purpose is to enable people to move away from homelessness. 
um, at whichever stage in that cycle they are. So we do a lot of work around prevention and um, moving people away from that cycle of homelessness. We do an awful lot of work when people find themselves um, homeless. So they we have lots of different projects. Uh, I think one of the important things is to say is Lamai never runs a hostel or a large kind of building. Um, our projects are all very home-like um, places. And then we do a lot of work for people in the community. Um, we do a lot of mediation with families where a uh, person um, is struggling within that family, family struggling with a person. We do a lot of work there. Um, we, of course, have got our homeless helpline so that any young person who um, finds themselves two, three in the morning, homeless, with not a roof over their head, they can reach out and we will find them a place of safety. Because for a lot of people, homelessness means the people you see on the streets. Um, rough sleeping is what I would call the sharp end of homelessness. It's where people have no other options. And Clamai is set up to stop people reaching that point. So we do an, a lot of intensive work prior to somebody finding themselves on the streets. However, we do get a lot of referrals from young people and women who have been on the streets too. So, I mean, I go around uh, just literally as an individual and sometimes with my kids and colleagues, and I go around at Christmas time around the, um, the streets of Cardiff and just give out little bags, okay? You know, nothing yeah, yeah. Just, just, just to help them along. And I see, I've been mean, doing it for four or five years now, and I see all kinds of different kinds of people. Is, is there, what does it take? I mean, this sounds a daft question. What does it take then for someone to find themselves in that position, i.e. sleeping rough on the street? Is, is that a daft question? But you know what I mean? I see these people and some of them are, uh, okay, uh, um, I don't know, maybe they've had a, a tough life, but some of them, well, most of them are so, so grateful, so polite, so um, intelligent, so articulate, and I think, how the hell? I mean, it sounds really privileged to me, I know, to say this, but how the hell have they found themselves in that situation in the first place? I don't ask them, but, but, but what is that? What does it take? I think for every individual on that street, it's taken a different kind of journey. Um, for some people, um, you know, because you'll have seen in the news, oh, we're all, all of us are only two or three paychecks away from becoming homeless. Um, that's not really true. Um, what happens for people is if they don't have networks and family relationships around. Most of us take for granted the support and help we get from our parents, um, the support and help we give our children, the support and help we give to our friends. So that for many people, when they're struggling, when things are really hard or when they're going through a very difficult time, they have somebody to reach out to. And they have people that will say, come and stay. We'll look after you. We'll, we'll help you get, you know, we'll help you get back on your feet. For some people, they don't have that network. Um, so... For example, you know, you, you can find someone who's been in the army, um, has post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, as a consequence, the marriage is broken up. They have no relationship with their children. Um, to combat the situation they're in, they can self-medicate on drugs or alcohol. They find then that they, get, they can't hold a job down um, and then they find themselves on a the street. For many women, um, again, what can happen is women have had 
series of abusive relationships of which the perpetrator has cut off all those networks of friends, family, um, and again, then when that relationship breaks down, that woman has nowhere else to turn. So, so I mean, let me let me quickly interrupt you there. And there's a two-prong question then. Um, one, is it a particular male or female problem, or are there more men than women? And two, is it a particularly Welsh problem? I mean, you think that you know Wales, the land of song and all that nonsense. But is it a particular problem in Wales more so than any other country? Well, taken from Wales, it's not a particular problem for Wales. It's a, it's a problem that is worldwide. Um, what I have to say is that Wales has, I would say, from some of the surveys and research, has a, a, a more empathetic approach to, to people who find themselves homeless than similar studies that were done, for example, in England. So um, the Welsh public are more sympathetic and more empathetic to people that have found themselves without anywhere to stay. Really? Good grief. You tend to, yeah, yeah. Um, I wasn't surprised. I know that sounds awful, but I wasn't surprised when <laughs> I saw that because I think the Welsh public are very, very warm-hearted. Yeah. Um, it's not a particular male-female problem, though I think it's true to say that you do see more men on the streets. And that's because a woman in a situation um, of homelessness very often will try and find um, a place to stay. And it's very similar to young people. You don't, for every one young person you see on the street, you can multiply that by between six and seven because young people are very good at what we call sofa surfing. So they will stay with a friend of a friend of a friend. Sadly as well, young people and women are more open to severe exploitation. Um, so somebody will come and offer them a place to stay and very soon it becomes apparent that the cost of that roof over your head is sexual or physical exploitation um, and in a situation we're in at the moment um, with you know with a pandemic that hasn't gone away um, you it, know that, that young people still are being exploited out there if anything it is probably a, a bigger problem at the moment I mean you said sofa surfing I mean I'd never heard of that to be honest yeah. until two three years ago so is that is that sort of grouped in homelessness is that regarded as homelessness or is it is, is, is a version of i suppose yeah yeah it is it's a version of and the one thing we are very lucky again in wales is the welsh government guidelines and what you know that the homeless sort of policies recognize sofa surfing as as a degree of homelessness because these are people that one, we've seen a huge spike in um, as a result of the pandemic, because where they were sofa surfing, people are now saying, you can't stay here, we've got to self-isolate, you know, we can't mix the household, so they're, be they're being thrown out. Um, but two, as I say, um, it's, it's, it is a very transient solution, so that that person doesn't know if they're going to have a roof over their head tomorrow night. They know that somebody said, yeah, you can keep on my sofa tonight. Mm. Um, and then tomorrow night, they might be told, well, you can't keep on my sofa. But if you go here, they might give you, you know, they might let you use their sofa. 
is dangerous. I mean, I know domestic abuse is obviously, uh, well, I mean, it's so stuff in the news at the moment, isn't it? Because of what's happening and everything, and the figures have, have rocketed, and it's, it's quite worrying and it's quite horrible. And obviously, the cast of women, especially, but also children, I presume. So, in which case, what influence do you have? What can you actually do practically, I suppose? To, to help as a CEO, as a company, as, a, as an organisation, as, as a charity? What, what can you actually do? How can you change things? I think we can change things um, in lots of different ways. Um, um, I joined Women's Aid at the age of 17, only about two years ago. Uh-huh. <laughs> say a word. Hey. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and I... I I was very naive, I guess. Um, I hadn't heard of domestic abuse. Um, I came from a family background where um, a a typical valleys where the women were very strong and no matter how articulate and intelligent the men were, they realised the women were probably far more and accepted it. (laughs) So it's an absolute shock to me that when I heard that women were being silenced and were being abused... And at that age, I wanted to eradicate that level of inequality. Um, and I think I thought that we could do it. Um, so I joined Women's Aid. I joined the movement. I worked extensively in England at the time. And we, what we were trying to do then was set up safe projects, refuges, so that women and their families could escape from the abuse. We spent a lot of time during those sort of formative years of women's aid of educating the police and trying to get people to recognize that domestic abuse was a significant problem particularly for women that's not to say that men do not suffer from it and in same-sex relationships as well but you know let's not forget that predominantly sadly the male is a very dangerous animal to the female um as i sort of work through the years and have come to the position i am now I think what I've realised is that until we get society to recognise that power and control over any individual in a coercive manner is unacceptable and is called out, we will never eradicate domestic abuse. Domestic abuse is one person feeling that they have the right to determine what somebody else does. So it's as, almost uh, like that. Sorry, go Old on. ownership. Yeah. You know, I mean, when you think about it, we're not that many, you know, we're, we're just over 100, perhaps 120 years of where a male owned a female and owned the children of the relationship. Yeah, yeah. And people go, oh, that's the past. It's not that long ago in the past. No, of course and not. And there's no. still that ideology i think that um yeah you know a, a man can control a female and, and as the ceo of this wonderful charity are you leaving yourself uh, you know i don't say too much but are you leaving yourself open to all kinds of criticism and um you know uh, people saying, "Well, you know, yeah, you know, you don't, you don't, uh, you don't need to do it." I mean, at the end of the day, I suppose uh, you don't. I mean, there should be. A, there's an argument, maybe. Then why do we, why do we have to have organisations like Yamai? Because shouldn't the government, shouldn't the authorities, be looking after these people in the first place? So you are leaving yourself open, I suppose, to a lot of 
criticism, aren't you, really? And I know you have totally. in, in, in the recent totally. past. And um, I have my regular trolls, which um, which thoroughly enjoy, enjoy, enjoy those attacks. Uh, I mean, they are typical examples of misogynists, yeah. but hey, oh, we won't go there. Yeah, no. I think what's important to remember is all charities started because a group of people saw or knew a group of people that weren't getting services they needed. So women's aid, for example, I mean, I wasn't at the forefront of when it started, but I wasn't far behind of, of the refuge movement. And it started at a time where um, government policy decided to take milk, free milk off um, families. A group of women got together to try and fight this and to see about how they could influence um, this, um, this perversive policy. Having got together and started a, a group, they realised just how many of them were being abused and how many of friends they knew were being abused. That's how Women's Aid started. Women talking to women and women getting together and saying, right, okay, come to my house, I'll find you a place of safety. Mm. And it expanded and it grew in that way. In the same way, mine started um, with people trying to help their own family members who were having mental health problems. Shlamai started because a group people saw that there was nowhere to go for young people who had been through um, the youth justice system. They were being left to fend for themselves. And I think it's really important that charities don't lose that community base, don't lose that, that message. We, we were set up for a specific purpose. My argument is, once you get governments into interfering in how you deliver services it all becomes a lot a very bureaucratic charities need to be able to be to move quickly depending on what the people that they are working with tell them needs to happen so in so government in, should be planted. yeah so in which case then is does welsh government recognize that there is a problem. Do they cooperate? Do they help? Do they advise? Are they, you know, are they backing you or supporting someone like you? Welsh government, um, and as I say, and again, I mean, I, you know, m most people who know me know that I'm always asking for more and I'm never happy with whatever I've got. <laughs> but that's just the nature of the game oh, because yeah. I just want the best people I'm privileged to work with. But I have to say that Welsh government have led the way right the way across the UK. Um, in supporting and providing a level of funding for organisations like Lamai. Uh, it used to be called Supporting People Funding. Um, now it's called Housing, um, housing Grant. Um, but that money um, is very, very important to organisations like Lamai. And it was money that was disbanded in England about about seven to eight years ago, completely ended. So charities in England are really struggling. The difficulty for Wales is that obviously with austerity, that funding has, you know, has remained, which is absolutely amazing, but we're 10 years in without any level of percentage increase while our costs are going up. So it doesn't cover um, if, if, it, if we can get funding in that covers about 65 to 70% of the cost of delivering the service, we're doing well. Really? Oh, okay. Um, wow. 
um, and that means we have to fundraise to meet the rest of the cost because again what's really important is you deliver services that people need and is going to enable them to move away from homelessness there's no point what i call in putting a sticking plaster on and then knowing that the support you're providing is not going to assist somebody long term so let's talk you know perceptions then you know i told you a little on that i go around uh you know purely as an individual because it's something i think i should be doing i want to do i ought to do uh and i do it you know i'm not asking for anything at all but every time we go around we see groups of and and this is a bit controversial i'm not being too critical hopefully i see groups of people from from companies i'm not going to name them but but for example supermarkets okay and they've got they've got the jackets and you know charity team or something on the back and and it all becomes a bit uncomfortable for me it all becomes a bit corporate uh, and is there a perception then that um, homelessness is something that they've all got to jump on the bandwagon about and they've all got to be seen to do something because it's the latest thing? You know, everybody's now you know on domestic abuse, obviously, because of what's happening. But I always feel uncomfortable when I see supermarket teams, about six, seven, eight of them, descending on these individuals with huge bags full of stuff. And then when I go along and, and offer my little bag, they've got, they've got quilts and pillows and all kinds of things. And it all becomes a bit corporate and is that a problem should it be a problem it's i mean the reality is is i can honestly say that i would not be here if it wasn't for a lot of our supporters these are the people the organizations the businesses that are coming together to uh, and collectively enabling us to supplement some of the the funding that we get through government or um, through trusts and funders to meet our costs. So what what I like to do is what's really important to me is that any sort of corporate or business partner that that sort of wants to work with us is that it's very much um, a give and take. So that what they're doing is they're fundraising, they're, you know, as you say, um, you know, that they are raising money and they're bringing in food um, or duvets, duvet covers, towels, essentials, suitcases, because I have an absolute, I think it's absolutely awful that a young person or a woman is degregated by shoving all the belongings that they have in, yeah. a, in, a, in a black sack. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I think that is um, so de- dehumanizing, um, you know, so, so we have, we really try and ensure that everybody that we work with <coughs> has a belonging case because that's what the rest of us take for granted. But with the businesses, what we try and do is ensure that where they're supporting and helping us, they're also supporting and helping the individuals that we are working with. So, for example, um, you know, I, I don't want to name any particular company and organisation because we have so many that really do help us. But as a young homeless person, if you can link um, up with a team or somebody within an organisation and they can see that that organisation cares about them as an individual, thinks that the start they had in life or in the case of domestic abuse, you know, feels that, you know, that, that they they deserve the same chances that most of us take for granted. Um, that can do a power of good to an individual 
um, just, just, just to sort of explain what I mean is that most of us are very fortunate. If we're trying to help our children or somebody we know get on in life, most of us are able to reach out and say, oh, look, they're interested in this. Do you know someone in this field that could talk to them about it? Yeah. Give them a bit of an example. Give them a chance. Yeah. Something that most of us take completely for granted. The young people and women we're privileged to work with don't have those doors open for them. But by working with companies and organizations, you know, we have companies coming in and talking to young people about what they expect from new employees, what they would look for in an interview. And then we have companies through some of our programs that will give young people a chance of a six-month work placement. We have, a, we have other organizations that will help that young person um, get the, the clothes needed to blend in with the rest of the new employees or the rest of the new apprentices. We have others that donate, like beauty banks, uh, sorry, toiletries and makeup and things that all of us take for, for granted yeah. to put on that work face. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, I, so, I, I mean, I know one of your your biggest supporters is uh, Michael Sheen, the, the actor from Port Albert, obviously, and uh, he's got his own causes and he's he's extra he's extremely good, isn't he, in the supporting um, Welsh causes and organisations and charities, and he's very passionate about that kind of things. I mean, I interviewed him um, last year when the Homeless World Cup was on. And we talked about uh, yeah. changing people's attitudes and perceptions. And, and you, know, you know some people say, well, you know, they shouldn't be on the street in the first place and they're only getting money because they're, they're going to do drugs and go alcohol, get alcohol or whatever, blah, 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 you know. So, so how, how do you, like an, as an organisation, I suppose, and how, how does the public in general change their attitudes and perception now no not all of them not most of them aren't like that at all that's not the case so what do we do it's quite difficult isn't it really to to, to change people's perceptions it's very difficult to change people's perceptions and it's understandable i mean the vast majority of people do not come across someone um who is homeless young people are no different to my own children you know, the, the way we I've seen young people move on forward and through with their lives um, has been, ex, you know, a, a, has been absolutely inspirational. But I would say that, wouldn't I? You know, it's because I've been involved from from a young age and, you know, she would say that, wouldn't she? When you have somebody like Michael, who is using his reach to explain in a very easily understood way how people find themselves in these situations and how these people are then looked at as homeless, not ex-nurse, um, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, ex-military, yeah. um, you know, so-and-so's grandson, you know, no, they're not even looked at that anymore. They are homeless. Um, we, we immediately start to almost dehumanise and someone like Michael humanises people. They are no different, you know, to him, to me, to you. And I think having people willing to do that um, and willing to use their, their reach, their fame, um, 
to push that message out is, is quite honestly, in well, it, it's priceless. It's priceless because I say something, let's be honest, the vast majority of people switch off. One, because they've heard me carp on before a hundred million times. <laughs> um, and, and, and two, is like, oh God, here she goes again. And I don't blame them because I'm always going on. Um, but then you hear somebody like Michael and it stops and think, oh, and Michael was willing to put, you know, immediately became our patron. But his first act was, I've got to talk to the young people. And he, over a long, very long weekend, sat down with, and I think over the whole weekend, over 250 young people oh. saying to them, okay, what it is you need, what it is you want. And, and the one thing they said was, if they had a magic wand, they wanted a helpline. They wanted a number that they could ring and the person at the end of that phone would know they were young, they were homeless and they needed help. And also the person would know that they might be very upset because they'd had a row with their parents or they might have had a drink and they didn't want to have to explain any of that. They just wanted that help there. And that's what Michael got behind. And that's how we, you know, with those 250 young people and Michael Sheen, that's what started the, the helpline. Yeah, he's uh, you know, he, he's pretty amazing. I was just say, having someone like him on board that does help. Obviously, look at you, Michael. Michael, this, Michael, that. Oh, yeah, look at you. <laughs> <laughs> There was recently, wasn't there, a big hoo-ha about all these tents appearing in Cardiff. Um, yeah. Goodness knows where they came from. And, God, people were up in arms. And it, uh, I, I could sort of see their point of view, and I could see the sort of point of view of the businesses, but then all of a sudden they disappeared. So uh, I suppose that kind of thing shouldn't really make a difference, but it does, doesn't it, really? People get angry, they get cross, they don't really want to see that kind of thing in their backyard. It's a real nimby thing, isn't it? At the end of the day, well, we're not the third world, this is Wales at the end of the day, but they need to, I don't know, wake up a bit? I mean, that was a problem, wasn't it, in Car or was it a problem? Is that me using the wrong word? It's difficult. I mean, as you say, you can see both sides. I mean, the reality is, you know, if anyone thinks that anyone chooses to sleep on the street or sit in a tent um, for, for as a choice, what I would say to them, you're barking. <laughs> and my, uh, my suggestion is, do it yourself, okay? If yeah. you've never done it, just one night or in a sleeping bag on the floor, I guarantee you, you won't be saying what you're saying. Having said that, businesses know that having a huge element of tents um you know around uh, you know around the shops do put people off and they have businesses to run they have employees um to keep in business and i think the other issue is that the, the people were choosing to be in those tents because there was nowhere else to go um and they were safer in together and in a well-lit area than they would be if they took their tents out into, you know, away from, you know, into a more rural area, they oh, okay. felt safer there. Um, so 
what what I didn't agree with and I will never agree with is getting rid of those tents and moving the problem on I think one of the I think one of the fantastic examples we've seen is that with the coronavirus um, there has been a mass movement to move people who were street homeless into accommodation and you know I have to say that most most councils and local authorities are doing a fantastic job to do that so my challenge to the public is they're doing it because of maybe the public health risk of having so many people on the streets not the risk oh. to the individuals oh, right okay but yeah. if we can do it because of of one reason we can damn well continue this um, and we can ensure that we do not go back thinking that is acceptable for anybody to be rough sleeping and what I would say as well is the fact that there's been some fantastic success here, really good success, moving people into um, into hotels, getting them the support they need, just shows that if you give people an option of where they can safely stay, they will. A lot of people choose not to go into large hostels because sadly, they can be very risky for some people they can if people are trying to get off drugs if you know that's where all the you know a lot of people who are selling drugs will push their drugs so i think we need to learn from what's happened now with the coronavirus as a way of saying actually we can get people off the streets and actually we can really radically reduce so hopefully um, we, can, we, we we can learn then hopefully from from this this terrible virus yeah. and, and the lockdown. But but I mean people, I mean you know I'm home for five days now at home and, and you know I cut myself lucky. But I can't I can't begin to imagine how someone who's sofa surfing or on their own or no family or no home, you know on the streets basically is dealing with this particular kind of well life this this lockdown. So. Are you, are you able to do anything as as a charity to to maybe help them along now in this difficult time? Well, I mean, um, again, my colleagues have been absolutely brilliant. And what we're doing is particularly with young people is because, as you say, um, you know, usually the, um, as an organisation, we lots of young people are out in training. They're having work placements. Um, you know, they are very busy during the day. And now, as a result, they are in projects and we're asking them to stay in projects and obviously to, to obey um, government guidelines. So we're doing an awful lot of um, in-house training, lots and lots of activities, lots and lots of sort of um, incentives as well. Um, you know, having pizza days, um, the amount of home cooking that's happening is incredible. I've got colleagues who are doing virtual cooking with different projects, um, you know, who are, hot, who are so the TV stars of the future. <laughs> um, and then the other amazing colleagues who are in the projects as we speak, um, you know, because we have seen a huge spike in the need for young homeless people. So more and more people coming into our services and a massive spike in the need for women coming in during lockdown as well. So we've had to We've had to expand our services at a time where obviously our costs are going up. But, you know, that's kind of we've just got to try and, and work that out, because yeah. what we can't do is, is is turn anybody away or not respond to the need because people desperately need 
um, to come in. Um, young people need a roof over their head and women are fleeing domestic abuse and they need to know our services are there and we will respond and they will be in a place of safety where the level of hygiene and the level of social distancing is second to none so they're not putting their families at any any sort of additional risk because it's hard enough to make that decision to leave in normal times when you've got a perpetrator saying, "Oh, you're going to, ca you know, you you catch the disease, and you know, you you, you know, um, yeah. you'll be dead, and you're killing the children," which they are saying, we have to we have to respond to that and show that it's absolutely not true. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I, I mean, you know, after all this is over, I suppose, well, I, well, even now, really, what can individuals do, and what can us as a, as the general public at large do? I mean, can we support, help? Can I? Are there is there more practical help that people can get involved with, with the guys of work you do? Well, um, I'd encourage anyone who wants to help us, please, please do um, look up um, on our website, www.my.org.uk. We've got, we've had some amazing volunteers who have come in and are taking things, for example, obviously uh, PPE equipment is absolutely vital for the projects and to ensure that young people who are self-isolating and colleagues are able to, to do that safely. So they're taking all those items um, around to different projects and dropping them off safely so my colleagues can continue to deliver the support. We've got other colleagues who are bringing in um, food items, fair share items, because obviously most of the people we support uh, are on very, very limited income. And it's really important that they get nutritious food. So people are doing that. Um, other people are doing some amazing fundraising for us. Um, anything um, that anyone can think of, we're very grateful because um, we're going to lose around 600,000 um, over a, a four to five month period as a result of the coronavirus. And that's because of an increase in costs um, because I can't, uh, you know, I have to pay for equipment and I've got to pay for, for cover, for specialist cover, for, you know, um, to cover sickness and, and colleagues who are self-isolating. But equally, as I said to you before, we usually raise around 40% of our income ourselves um, and fundraising is has just, you know, has just died for, for lots of charities. And I can't furlough any colleagues because they're needed on the front line. Um, they're needed now more than ever because the need has gone up. Let's end then. How Remind us what the uh, website address is again and how do people get hold of you? Are you on social media? I, I... Yes, um, we're on social media. Just look up um, at Shamai UK, double L-A-M-A-U UK on social media or www.shamai.org.uk. Um, and we would be grateful for any help, even just getting the message out there that we're open, we're ready for service, and do not stay somewhere unsafe, please. Good. Well, that's a, that's a very, very great message, a very apt message to end with. Um, as far as I'm concerned, you are actually an influencer. Shamai is obviously influencing um, all kinds of things uh, across Wales. So uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to interview. Thank you very, very much for joining me. Um, I'm going to have to go because my dog is scratching at the window. He needs a wee, so I'm going to have to go. <laughs> Let him out. He's desperate to love him. So, um, Francis, thank you so much. Lovely to talk to you. Chris. And stay safe. Bye-bye.